Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you know what the fellow said? In Italy, for 30 years, under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, they had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. You did not do that in an Orson Welles voice. <laughs> I, I don't know if I... I, uh, I don't know if I can do an Orson Welles voice. <laughs> That sounded like your sexy bedroom voice. <laughs> what What is the difference, really? <laughs> Don't you wish you could sound like Orson Welles in the bedroom? <laughs> of course. Uh, so today, we are not talking about Orson Welles, but we're talking about the man who directed the film that that quote comes from, Carol Reed. Best known today as the director of The Third Man, and also, I guess, as the Oscar-winning director of Oliver. I don't think people bring that up very often. People don't really think of Oliver as a movie that was directed by somebody, do they? I don't think people think of Carol Reed beyond the director of the movie that we probably think Orson Welles directed. And you know, it's interesting, I watched the Criterion introduction to The Third Man by Peter Bogdanovich. And Bogdanovich opens it by saying that The Third Man is one of the greatest non-auteur films ever made, which is a bit of a backhanded compliment. And also patently untrue. I mean, maybe if Peter Bogdanovich had seen no other Carol Reed film, that would be a truce to him. But in everything I've read about Carol Reed, in the documentaries I've seen, this is the thing that keeps coming up over and over again, that uh, he wasn't an auteur, that he was a craftsman, and that auteurist critics have always had a, a hard time with him. Now, for this podcast, we watched the three movies, and I think you watched a few more, but we focused on three movies that are on the Criterion channel right now. And they're the ones that came in succession. We watched Odd Man Out, The Fallen Idol, and The Third Man. And I mean... I'm not an expert in Carol Reed. These are the three Carol Reed movies I've seen now. And I mean, there's certainly great. Uh, I mean, I mean, I can definitely detect the presence of a uniting figure behind these three. Anytime Carol Reed's name comes up, it, the later films he made after The Third Man are always kind of like, ah, they weren't very good. So maybe he wasn't that good a director, <laughs> even though that, like we mentioned, he won the Oscar for Best Director, and his film won Best Picture. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, a lot of his later films, I guess he just worked in a multitude of different styles, and, you know, they were a little... I mean, he directed 34 films, yeah. so it's not like he was a, like, a three-and-done kind of guy, because if he was, he would probably be held in much higher acclaim than he is. And, yeah, The Third Man, you know, because it has Orson Welles in it, because people have always speculated that, oh, you know, what did he have to do with it? And his three big movies also have some very strong collaborators in there, like the cinematographer Robert Krasker, and in two of them, Graham Greene as writer. And they also had a really strong producer with Alex Corda behind the scenes. And The Third Man had David O. Selznick as a producer as well. Now, let's talk about The Third Man, because this is indisputably his most beloved film. And also probably one of the most beloved films of all time. It is. But what's weird about The Third Man is I think people remember scenes. And I think they kind of forget the, like, the middle part of the movie okay. when they talk about it. What do you think of when you think of The Third Man? Uh, Not Joseph Cotton. Uh, I, I think of that light shining on yeah. a, a man's face and, oh my God, it's Harry Lyme. That's right. Orson Welles, who appears very late in the picture, and it's a big twist. I hope we didn't spoil it for anybody that he's actually alive. Because the film is about Joseph Cotton, who's a American pulp writer who comes to uh, a pre-Cold War Vienna. But a post-World War II Vienna. Uh, to meet his good friend, Harry Lyme. But... 
uh-oh, Harry Lyme is dead. He died a few hours before Joseph Cotton came to meet him. But Joseph Cotton thinks something is up because the police tell him that his good friend um, was a smuggler. Yes, and also he starts hearing conflicting reports about how Harry Lyme died. And, you know, there are some suspicious people there and he thinks that there were two people who carried the corpse off or was there actually a mysterious third man who was there? Well, it turns out that third man, uh, you know, spoiler, may or may not have been uh, Harry Lyme himself. Uh, he also becomes entangled with uh, Harry Lyme's lover, Alita Valley, who uh, remains loyal to Harry, even though we find out some very dirty dealings that Harry was involved in. By, by the way, this is a spoiler review. Okay. <laughs> We've said spoiler like this is a, ten times this in is, the last minute. I mean, I think you should see The Third Man, okay? and uh, But if you go to see it, you've probably seen the ending of the movie. Because yeah. like, if you're a cinephile, you've heard about it, even if you haven't seen the picture. So there are the three iconic scenes. There's, yeah. there's, and they all involve Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. It's Welles, you know, in the doorway. There's Welles when he's on the Ferris wheel in Vienna with Joseph Cotton, where he starts outlining his dark and rather Joker-like philosophy. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> because we found out that what happens when an immovable object is <laughs> something in motion. You know, if I. If... <laughs> If I say some gangbanger is going to die, no nobody freaks out because it's all part of the plan. <laughs> and so the whole film is about, oh my god, my good friend is actually a bad person. And out of all of the films that I watch that Carol Reed directed, that's what the thesis of all of them are. It's this illusion of normalcy is kind of destroyed before the protagonist's eyes. Oh, and by the way, the third famous scene is that chase in the sewers. Through the Vienna sewers. And that's the one that everybody goes, "Uh, Orson Welles obviously directed that one. And if you've seen Carol Reed's two films before that, he already did those scenes. It's just a variation of those. Although, I mean, there's been speculation on, I mean, we don't know how, to what extent he was influenced by Orson Welles. I mean, he... I mean, yeah, Orson Welles says, ha, Carol Reed would not direct like this if it wasn't for Citizen Kane and the other pictures I made as well. And sure, okay, I- I'll buy that. Well, Carol Reed cast Welles uh, over the objections of David O. Selznick, mm-hmm. who uh, put money into the film. Yeah, because he said, ah, oh, Orson Welles is difficult, and Orson Welles on this picture was difficult. Because <laughs> right. that last chase there's a lot of like doubling for him because he showed up late and then refused to get dirty so i know that you are i mean you like this movie but yeah i like it you're a little moderate on it yeah it's one of those films that is definitely hermetically sealed like it's a movie that when i was watching it um this past week i went yeah i've seen this (laughs) like i know it and it doesn't have that kind of power that we've talked about this before, where you go, well, I don't need to see that classic John Ford film. I feel like I've seen it. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, yeah, like this is why everybody's talking about this. This is one of them that when I watched, I kind of stood up in my seat a little bit at the beginning because I'm like, ah, this feels like uh, Mr. Arkadent, <laughs> where there's like an, uh, a monologue and there's like a bunch of cuts and comedy stuff. Well, what's interesting is, you know, Mr. Arkadin or some Yes, that made, is the correct way to pronounce yeah, it. <laughs> uh, when Mr. Arkadin was made a few years later, it was the script of it was rejiggered out of scripts that Wells had written for his hack radio show, The Lives of Harry Lyme. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the third man may have been influenced by Wells, but then Mr. Arcadden was influenced by the third, third man, man very heavily. Um, I put this movie on this week. I hadn't seen it in almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really in the mood to watch it. Gotta say, 
I love this movie. It's a movie that, like, the middle part, it's just kind of like Joseph Cotton doing a bunch of stuff in these beautifully rendered Vienna streets just crumbling from post-war destruction. And I just don't really care about him. I don't really care what he's doing wow. or what's going on. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted to hear this, but, you know, f- fair enough. I mean, I... I was sort of blown away by how, you know, you've got this this city that it's full of all this history and it's this vast and incredible, beautiful city shot in this very kind of expressionistic way that makes it all the more alienating. And the streets are barren and in front of these gigantic buildings and monuments are these pathetic, tiny people. I think he did it better in The Fallen Idol, though, which he made before this. Okay. Uh, and Odd uh, Man I, Out, I, I, which he also did this. All right. And well, I watched Third Man last after those two films. Fair enough. I mean, I I don't know if I agree, but you know, yeah, you don't need to. Agree. I mean, yeah. listen, people are gonna just people love the Third Man. Yeah, they love it. Like when people say, "What's your favorite movie?" A lot of people will go right to, "Oh man, the Third Man." It captures cinema in a way that like no other film does. It is like when people talk about film noir, that's what they're thinking of. That expressionist kind of look to it. And 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 not just that but the kind of post-war like moral blackout i Mm. mean this city full of history this this beautiful city where you know these awful people characters who range from either just truly evil to misguided like alita valley to just pitiful like joseph cotton I, i think my problem was i didn't care about joseph cotton and what he was doing like you're just waiting there for harry lime to show up because when you're watching you know that's coming oh i mean i i uh and the mystery is not i think developed enough for me to get into it my, and, my goodness yeah i mean i'm here to just you know shit on the third man i guess wow i gave it four stars out of five <laughs> i'm sorry i don't love it with all my heart so i think another thing that i like about this movie is you know, coming after the war, coming after all the atrocities of the war, this is a movie that's all about how easy it is to just be completely amoral. Yeah. You know, uh, you've got Joseph Cotton, who is playing an absolutely, utterly ordinary person in every way, mm-hmm. uh, both as an artist and as a man. Who actually believes that the image of his good friend is what it has to be. That's what's motivating him, not he's getting all these different stories from people and he's like, no, no, no. I know who Harry Lime is and I'm going to keep going down this path to figure it out. And then when Orson Welles comes on and the movie lights up like a pinball machine, what whenever do you he's there. think about, I don't know if it was Carol Reed, but I remember reading somewhere that like they felt Orson Welles was too charming in the role. Oh, I, I truly don't agree. No, I don't agree either yeah. because that needs to happen. Cause what yeah. he's saying is so horrible yeah. that because it's fun to watch him do it, that's a problem. And you've got to understand why Joseph Cotton is so... Yeah, why everybody conflicted. is. Yeah, <laughs> like, why does Alita Valley love him? Yeah. And then, you know, you see him on the Ferris wheel and he gives that famous speech about, look like, at all those little dots down there. Would you really be troubled if one of them stopped moving? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you think, well, geez, would I be really troubled? Like, like it's a very easy... Like, once he puts it that way, you can imagine putting yourself in that frame of mind and being yeah. like, well, <laughs> I mean, you know, for 70 for seventy euros a, or 70 pounds or whatever yeah. the currency was. I could kill a, a bottle. Yeah, maybe maybe I wouldn't wouldn't mind seeing one of those little dots. And that and that's that's horrifying. But a lot of people made that moral calculation. A lot of people did. I mean, when he said that, I'm like, no, especially because Joseph Cotton at this point is told that Orson Welles sold diluted penicillin mm-hmm. that caused children to have brain damage because of their 
their meningitis. Mm-hmm. And it's not until the police commissioner takes Joseph Cotton to look at them mm-hmm. and like, look at what he did. And then Joseph Cotton, of course, betrays Harry Lyme, but for a price. Yes. So it's not even a movie about good triumphing over evil. Mm-hmm. And then there's that great last shot where, you know, he stands by his car while Valley uh, walks past A perfect him. ending because like... Graham Greene wanted them to get together, which makes no sense on a story level. Yeah. (laughs) And so that last shot is perfect because they're two people that are passing through somebody else's story, somebody else's choices. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could argue that like Joseph Cotton is so insignificant in the story because it's not his story. It's Harry Mm -hmm. Lyme's story Mm -hmm. that he happens to stumble into. But I think, you know, you said that you found him not that interesting in Mm -hmm. presence. And I mean, he's certainly not Orson Welles, but I don't know. I think in this kooky movie, we've got all these wacky characters and and all these tilted camera angles to show you by a parrot. To show, show you how askew the world is that yeah. he's in, uh, morally and otherwise. Uh, Just like the man who killed Don Quixote. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but the man who killed Don Quixote could have benefited a bit from this, because yeah, yeah. I, I find Joseph Cotton... I'm not comparing the third man. <laughs> I find Joseph Cotton a character that I can, like, project myself onto, because he's so mm. utterly ordinary. I mean, I'm amazing, so it's difficult for me to... Right, you're more like Harry Lyme. <laughs> That's right. One day I'm going to encounter you in Vienna and you're going to be telling me, hey, look, I just made a fortune uh, selling Listen, diluted man, penicillin. I need to buy those Blu-rays and what difference does it make if someone dies? Yeah, look, look at us up here on this uh, Ferris wheel. <laughs> yep, that's 100% going to happen. So another film that we watched was Carol Reed's Odd Man Out. And this is this film about James Mason who plays an Irish revolutionary that when a hit goes wrong, he's forced to kind of fend for himself in uh, on the streets over one long night as everybody's kind of looking for him and trying to figure out what's going on. Right. And the character, whose name is Johnny McQueen, he's been in jail for six months because, I mean, he's basically a member of the IRA, even though the... The film never specifies. Right. I think it's called The Organization. I don't even the think film. they say it's in Ireland either. It's just like up in the air. Everyone just has Irish accents. Yep. He's been in jail for six months and he escapes and then he's been hiding for six months and you sense that he's been dulled and weakened by both imprisonment and inactivity. And he's also beginning to question whether or not political violence is advisable. So, you know, he doesn't quite have the group's confidence. And yeah, during this bank robbery, um, he gets a dizzy spell and he gets injured during the robbery and uh, he's hiding basically in in various alleys as the movie goes on, trying to find help from somebody, anybody. But nobody wants to give him help. What's fascinating about this movie is that it starts straight, but Mm -hmm. as James Mason goes through this long night, it turns more and more expressionistic Mm -hmm. until at the end it looks like the third man. It's like his delirium and this inability to get anything. Like when you think about like one long night films, you think of something like After Hours. This is not what it is because... James Mason is just injured from the get-go. He can't really do anything. And anybody he runs into either wants to sell him out or they want to just get him out of there so they don't have to deal with him. (laughs) It's like the idea that, like, he's trying to do this for these people and they either turn against him or don't care. Yeah, and it sneaks up on you how subjective the style gets. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't quite understand early on that you're seeing the movie from James Mason's point of view. And uh, this was also shot by the cinematographer Robert Krasker, and like The Third Man, 
uh you know it's a very well it's a very black and white movie it's got you know b- uh, beautiful sort of wet city mm-hmm. streets and, and uh it looks a lot like the third and, man <laughs> yeah i think the one thing that doesn't make odd man out as popular as something like the third man is how pessimistic it is like every scene is like ah misery and death is just around the corner well it doesn't have like an orson welles mm-hmm. presence it doesn't have that wry sensibility you know the third man that zither score oh we didn't even talk about that we, we should Yep. You know what I love about that Zither score is it it's like wall to wall through the movie as all this like awful stuff happens. Yeah, and it's like bloop, 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 it's I, very comedic. The music is basically just saying, yeah, what are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, this is life. Yeah, <laughs> Life sucks, doesn't it? Whereas Odd Man Out is much heavier. It is it is heavy. I found it was a bit of a tough watch as I was watching. I'm like, mm-hmm. alright, I know he's gonna die at the end. Like, yeah. come on, let's just get, get this over with. Yeah. Uh, this is Roman Polanski's favorite movie, by the way. That Did does not surprise that? me at all. Yeah. Nope. Uh, so, The Fallen Idol is the movie that came between Odd Man Out and The Third Man. Mm-hmm. And this is one that I was like, eh, you know, I'll watch it. It's on the Criterion uh, channel. And it just kind of blew me away. It's another Graham Greene um, script based on one of his short stories that Carol Reed actually changed fairly heavily from the adaptation from the page to the screen. And it's about a young boy played by uh, Bobby Henri in one of his only two film roles, mm-hmm. who's a son of a diplomat and uh, taken care uh, day in, day out by Butler, played by Ralph Richardson. Who has an incredible hairline in this film. <laughs> it is crazy. <laughs> and what slowly starts to evolve throughout the film is that the boy is confronted with things that he does not understand as a child. And you're seeing the movie through the boy's perspective. So you never know more than he knows. And it's also shot from the boy's perspective. Most of the film is far away him watching the adults do something. It takes place in this gigantic mansion. A incredible production mm. design, by yeah. the way. Um, and you're always like, I, I've, I've seen very few movies that so accurately convey sort of what it is like to be a child, just like the way your body is navigating space as a child, you mm-hmm. know, how sort of limited your world is and how big your surroundings are. So Bobby Henri, the kid in this film, his acting style is something that I associate more with like modern day kid performances, like the Florida project that I would kids mm-hmm. around this time the movie came out is that. He is a non-actor, so his performance, which supposedly was a nightmare for Carol Reed to get out of him, is very natural in the way that it kind of evolves in the way that he talks and he reacts to things. We both watched a short documentary about him called The Sense of Carol Reed, where they talk a lot about what a good director of children he was. I mean, he made Oliver, of course. Mm -hmm. One of his techniques was he did a lot of reaction shots, not a lot of shots with two people in, so that he could, like, coach the the children and, you know, uh, really hone in on their performances. And also, he like as a director was able to sort of bring himself down to a child level yeah to get like to understand what they're going through Mm -hmm. and kind of push them to the step that he needs them to arrive at and like the fallen idol what ends up happening is um the butler is having an affair and his wife who's also a maid in this giant house uh kind of confronts the butler and they have a fight and, I mean, this is going to be a little bit complicated to say, but what, what ends up happening is the uh, maid dies, and it's an accident, but the young boy believes that the butler killed her. Mm-hmm. And he loves the butler. He's his best friend. So instead of it being a thing like, oh, the kid knows that a murder happened, it's the kid thinks a murder happened, but he doesn't want to let anybody know because he loves this, like, 
idol figure so much. There's so much like complicated stuff going on in this movie, and Carol Reed finds so many interesting ways to present it, whether it be the way that after the kid witnesses this, he runs into the street into a third man-like chase, <laughs> where all the canted, like, the city looks like it's foreboding over the kid, and the way that, like, he gets called over by a police officer and the way the police officer gains his trust or the kid sitting in the police station and just looking at a, a sign that says wanted for murder mm -hmm. and what's going through his mind and what that means and what decisions he has to make. I mean, we didn't really talk about how Carol Reed is like a master when it comes to suspense stuff of mm -hmm. like, you know, people are associated with Hitchcockian like, okay, we're waiting. We know there's a bomb under the table. When is it going to happen? And there's tons of sequences like this in The Fallen Idol. Like, the uh, the police come over and over again, and there's always, like, a little thing, whether it be a paper plane that's a telegram that, like, they don't want the police officer to open, or the kid racing to try to find a reason of how he could lie to these authority figures to protect his friend because he think he murdered somebody. Mm -hmm. There's just so much stuff going on, and I found that, like, super engaging, especially when it kicked into high gear in the last half and it's quite a beautiful film about like the loss of childhood innocence mm -hmm. you know like understanding that you know you're lied to like mm -hmm. even like like very gentle lies like the butler goes oh yes i killed a man in africa yeah. in, in play impacts a child and that influences the decisions he makes throughout the film and when you realize that you know your adult heroes mm -hmm. are not uh invulnerable and what that means yeah <laughs> like how is the kid gonna move forward from here and i mean you know the film has like a happier ending than in the graham green story but the graham green story is actually much much simpler it's just the kid just sees the butler murder someone and then he tells the police that's it mm. and this one is so much more complicated in the way that carol reed spins like three plates there's a climax at the end where someone is going to kill themselves it seems but also the police are discovering something and the kid is trying to yell something else. So there's three suspense mechanisms all working in sequence. And you're like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. <clears throat> and that's why this is like the one out of the three that you watch. And I was like, ah, yeah, this is the good stuff. Yeah. So these three movies represent, you know, the core of his filmography. These are the agreed upon pinnacle of his mm -hmm. career. Uh, but there was a lot before and a lot after. He started making quota quickies in Britain. What What is a quota quickie? Quota quickie was that Britain um, passed a law saying, like, we can only import so many films mm -hmm. and that um, you have to play a percentage of British pictures. So companies realized this, and a lot of American companies went to the UK and were like, oh, we, we have instant things to sell. So let's make as many films as we can to fill this quota, hence the, the name. I'm probably getting the um, law a little bit wrong, but that's essentially what it came to. And that gave a lot of filmmakers their first shot to make pictures like Carol Reed. And you watched Night Train to Munich, which I, I did. Seen. I don't know if it's a quota quickie because it was like kind of on the end of that. It was made in 1940 and it shows Carol Reed. He was often described as a like a watchmaker in the sense that like, every piece would work in sync with the other. Mm -hmm. Like, Night Train to Munich, which is essentially a sequel to Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes. Same screenwriters, the same two bumbling detectives show up. Oh, in, really? Uh, yeah. Are Night Train Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> yep. And it's a fascinating film as well because it kind of 
has like fun spy shenanigans with concentration camps and stuff like that, which were just being discovered at that time. Mm-hmm. And Rex Harrison plays like a daring spy who gets into a Sergio Leone or, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Glorious Bastards thing where he's pretending to be someone else and he's sitting on a train with the Nazi officer who's kind of suspecting him mm-hmm. and you don't know what's going to happen as they're doing a bunch of stuff. And there's a note under like a snack that they're all reaching for and taking snacks off. It's him like as a master of like just squeezing every little moment of suspense out of the picture. And it also shows him like Hitchcock, a master of like miniatures and just special effects and lighting effects. There's a shot that goes over concentration camp and you realize as a place, oh, this is a miniature as it like goes across it to go towards like a a chain link fence that's opened up. Mm -hmm. And you know, these kind of pictures make me wonder like, it's weird that he didn't have, like more defenders that people are like, ah, he just made this. And then he had those three pictures and that was it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when I watched those three movies, uh, you know, people say that he wasn't an auteur, which, you know, maybe is the case, but there's a lot of directorial intelligence in those movies. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and I think that there's a lot of um, similar aesthetics. Like mm-hmm. we talked about the kind of expressionist feel is right there. in odd man out. It's right there in The Fallen Idol, and it's there in The Third Man. So to turn around and be like, yeah, Orson Welles probably directed the scene is, I mean, it's true if you've only seen The Third Man. Although, supposedly, Orson Welles wrote the cuckoo clock speech. Yes, and I believe that, yeah. that he, like, improvised it It sounds on like set. him. It sounds like something he would say, yeah. yeah. And I guess if that's, like, what you call directing, then sure, yeah, Orson Welles directed The Third Man. <laughs> Let's put the stamp on it right here. Uh, I don't think we either watch any of the post-Third Man films. I tried. I was like, I'll give Our Man in Havana a shot. Alec Guinness, this one was also written by Graham Greene, and nah, I didn't have time to get to it. I feel like I should watch Oliver one of these days. Yeah, I, I mean, just don't want to. Three hours long, Ugh. and and recently I heard like, oh, and it's very inspired by the David Lean one, and I'm like, why don't I just watch the David Lean one yeah. then? Or better yet, don't watch any Oliver yeah. Twist movies. Who cares? No, uh, not me. <laughs> yeah, we're saying right here, important cinema club, anti Charles Dickens. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so if any of these films like interest people and they like The Third Man, I would highly recommend to check them out. They're on the Criterion channel, The Odd Man Out and um, The Fallen Idol. So mm-hmm. go and check them out. Uh, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Bennett Glace. And he goes... I'm a longtime listener and on and off Patreon subscriber. One line from last week's episode has finally compelled me to reach out. What was the line? Jeez. I've got a Woody Allen tattoo. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had a video here because there was like a beat as Will's face was like just kind of processing it and then his mouth just dropped open. Okay, so last week we were riffing on the... Somebody sent us a letter uh, asking, you know... What tattoo we would get. What tattoo we would get. And I was saying, well, I I don't think I would get a tattoo for a lot of reasons, but also because like what happens if the person you get a tattoo of gets me tooed? Mm-hmm. That would be a bad situation. And you're like, you know, I, I could have almost gotten a Woody Allen tattoo. Yeah, I imagine. So, but and it would, it would have never crossed your mind either to be like, man, those allegations against him, they're, they're bad. I would never would have got a Woody Allen no, tattoo. No, okay. I don't think. Anyway, Especially re- not now. <laughs> let me read the rest of the letter. <laughs> to say that it's poisoned my life would be a little dramatic, but I certainly feel a constant sense of shame. While it would take several years for Dylan Farrow's allegations to reemerge in a big way, the world immediately let me know what a bad decision I'd made, if you'll indulge me. 
The day after graduating from high school, three friends and I drove a fair distance so that the two of us could get tattoos at a well-regarded shop. She went with the unicorn. I went with the cartoon rendering of the woodman. Now, he sent a photo of this. And I'm not going to be posting it for a reason I will say a little bit later on. But just imagine, you know, Woody Allen had that comic strip. Yeah. That's what the, it's just the image of his face. We both went in with the right buttock. <laughs> I've got to give the artist credit. He was surprisingly good sport about having to shave my ass and stare directly at it for the better part of an hour. On our drive back, my friend, the other newly tattooed one, tried to take an exit too late. We went off the road, the car went into the air, and we landed with a pretty terrifying thud. Oh my god. No one was hurt, but the car was totaled. His parents had to come pick us up. They had no idea she had taken the car to get an ass tat. I wonder if it was like... Some heavenly force trying to, like, yeah. warn him of what he'd done. Try, trying to kill him to save <laughs> future humiliation. While I certainly didn't envy her then, uh, yeah, I'm sure the guy was like, a unicorn tattoo? I think it's safe to say I've lost in the long term. Why did I do it? I guess Alan's films meant a lot to me. Mm. One of my earliest cinematic memories is finding a kindred spirit in his character from Ants. <laughs> I wish I was kidding. Make no mistake, though, my tattoo makes me look like an apologist. I swear I'm not. While we're on the subject, though, I have to thank Will for introducing me to both Wobble Palace and Red Scare. I don't know what Red Scare is. Is it a movie or is it a podcast? Uh, you don't want to know. Okay. <laughs> I'm currently researching options for removing, covering the tattoo. I'm not at all a tattoo person, so if it's the latter, I'll probably opt for a simple black box. But he's going to be under there. <laughs> I say, just own it. <laughs> I mean... Just be like, you, yeah, I, Annie Hall, great film, you know? Yeah. Hannah and her sisters. <laughs> you know what? Will's going to go get a tattoo tomorrow. <laughs> uh, no, absolutely not. Just just say, you know what? It's a funny story. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a conversation God tried piece. to kill me. J just say, yeah, you know, what can I say? It was a different time. Yeah, I just know? got out of high school. I love ants. And, you know, probably if you're getting to the point where you're with somebody where your pants are off, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they'll be giving you the benefit of the doubt at I that point. I don't look at people's ass that much, like, in that context. In that context, yeah, yeah exactly. So you're probably good. Probably you could get away with it a few times <laughs> yeah. before, you know... Anyway, I love the show. I'm so starved for conversations about film with hosts I can't stand. And several dozen where casual factual errors and weak tea takes are de rigueur. You guys are the rare podcast that's never forced me to grit my teeth. Oh, well, that was until this third man episode. <laughs> or mash the fast forward button. You were even a major inspiration for my own. How about an episode on Terrence Davies? You know... I'm not very familiar with Terrence Davies. Are I, you? I've seen a few of his movies. I like I like him. I like yeah. him as well. I keep meaning to check out um, The Neon Palace, I believe it's called. I haven't seen that one. I like The Long Day Closes, and mm -hmm. I like the one from a few years ago with Rachel Weisz, the title of which I'm forgetting right now. Anyway, thanks for the recommendation and hours of enjoyment. All right, well, thank you very much for this letter. Th thank you. That, was, I, that letter made my day. <laughs> that was a... Um, <laughs> I guess, bearing your soul. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> now all your sexual partners who obviously listen to this podcast will know they'll be at a party and go like, wait, are you the one with the woodman on your ass? Like I say, own it. I think it's yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah. and, and, but you're not the one with it on and, your and, ass. And he's a great filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not a very good man, but... Uh, a bad man. Yeah. All right, so our next letter is from... Philip Siegel, and it goes, Hey, Will and Justin, recently discovered uh, the podcast, and I've been working my way through the back catalog and the Patreon, so I apologize if I'm bringing up stuff you've already forgotten to say or addressed. Well, thank you very much for being a Patreon subscriber. 
The question is, Godar's King Lear has come up a few times. <laughs> Speaking of the Woodman. Yeah, yeah, Woody's in that. <laughs> which is a movie I actually quite like. But only because I watch it while going through Richard Brody's Everything is Cinema. Richard Brody, that's his favorite Godard film. It is? Yeah, he loves King Lear. I don't think I made it that far into Everything is Cinema. That is like a Ulysses to me. I always started it, and I'm like, all right, Godard ate a sandwich on the Tuesday. I actually just reread it recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was like, you know, Lay's. Bet you can't eat just one. (laughs) Every short film he made, every commercial. Loved it. In massive detail. And man... My God, Godard is such a prick. And he is, like, I mean, Godard, when he dies, he's going to, like, close his eyes and go, I fooled you all. (laughs) Just die. (laughs) Anyway, so the letter continues. Thanks to reading Richard Brody's Everything is Cinema, it gave me a clear enough sense of the idea Godard was working with so I could engage with the movie. I also just picked up the new Arrow Blu-ray of... I cannot say this Russian name, Khrushchev Mykar, mm-hmm. hoping that the documentaries and essays on Russian history and interviews with Alexei German will keep the movie from being as impenetrable as rumored. I love this movie. I actually just got the Blu-ray as well. Nice. Assuming the context provided by the features does help, and it does, does that make the reviewers that scored it poorly when it came out because they couldn't understand it wrong, since the movie could have been understood if they had the context? Or were they right to call it bad, or at least an unsuccessful film, if you can't just sit down and watch it without doing your research homework beforehand? Um, I mean, I think with something like that, probably you should know at least a bit of the context going in. So in the essay that comes with that Blu-ray, the director actually says, I thought people would know who this character was just by having an actor look like him because he's a famous Russian historical figure. And he's like, that was one of the big mistakes that I made. Interesting. What's interesting about that film is that when you watch it, it is pretty impenetrable. Like, um... It's a lot of, like, farting and weird noises and, like, mud, like, squishing. But it's also a beautiful film shot in these long takes. It it almost feels like the nightmare version of a Terry Gilliam film Mm -hmm. in the sense that there's a million things going on in the frame at once and you don't know where to look and you don't know what's going on. So you can either disconnect with it or go, okay, I'm going to get involved with just this, like, emotional sense. Mm -hmm. And afterwards then I can, like, get the historical context of where this is coming from. Mm-hmm. Other than that, yeah, that's tough. Yeah. I think about that a lot when I watch movies, and I go, would I like this more if I knew the background to it? Certainly there are movies, I think, that kind of uh, speak to you in some way on the first viewing. Mm-hmm. And, then, like, you know, we've talked about Epichetpong Virasathakul on this podcast. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. And, you know, he's somebody who... Like, I find it easy to get into his movies on on a certain basic level. Yes, but I agree. if you know a little bit about, you know, the uh, military junta in Thailand... You, you learn, get more out of yeah. it. I mean, I, I'd have to say that I think that you should be able to sit down and watch most movies. And even if you don't know the historical context that it comes out of, you can be moved or have some kind of reaction or intrigued intrigued by it. And if that's not there and you need context for it, I mean, that may be the director, the the filmmaker's intention. I don't know if that's a failure, but I am looking for that. Like, all right, you you gotta get me somehow. Yeah. Like it makes me think of um, Strobin Uyet's film, the Chronicle of Anna Magdalena back. Mm -hmm. And like that film is famous that they shot in the rooms where the original music was composed. It's supposed to look and feel exactly like it. All the narration is from actual letters. Mm -hmm. So it gives the film a certain feel 
But you should be able to watch it not knowing those things and still get something out of it. And that movie you do mm. because it has its own internal sense and just kind of mood. But knowing the other stuff adds to the experience, but it is not the experience in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a tough question. It de- I, mean, I think it probably depends on the day. Like, sometimes they'll be like, I don't, like, why should I do research? And other times they'll be like, hmm, yes, I understand now that I've read <laughs> this information about this picture. Mm-hmm. What about King Lear? Let's give a little hint because we never really talked about it. I actually forget what Richard Brody's thesis on that movie is. I mean, I find Godard's King Lear a little hard to watch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I although I enjoy... I enjoy the fact that it exists. I love all the lore behind it. I mean, like, if you approach it and you're like, this was a film that was funded by Canon Films. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially the movie Canon Films never wanted to get. Because it's a Godard film. And it's like the antithesis. All these stars like Molly Ringwald or even Woody Allen are in it. Woody Allen, who is very central to the funding of the movie, is only in the last like 30 seconds of it. Mm-hmm. And he's doing he's doing no shtick. You and know? Norman Mailer, who was supposed to write the script for the film, is in the opening scene on the phone just arguing about the script well yeah and it start it, the beginning of king lear in the opening credits you hear an angry phone call from Manaham golan mm-hmm. who was, was of course one of the owners of canon films saying jean-luc where is the film we're supposed to have it for khan and then yeah you see that norman mailer scene and godard is narrating it and he says norman mailer left the film after some star behavior well the star behavior was he cast Mailer and his real life daughter and Godard wanted to make it look like they were having an incestuous relationship. <laughs> and Mailer, I think quite understandably said, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then the rest of the movie, like it was, it was the movie was actually like Godard spent two years dragging his heels on it. And then he shot the movie like pretty quickly when like he had a, to. Yeah. Like a week or two yeah, or something basically. like that. Yeah. In the hotels that he was staying in. And has virtually nothing to do with King Lear. Nothing. Although, you know, again, I'm sure if Richard Brody would hear, he would be able to explain what it had to do with I King actually Lear. had a moment last night where I was reading something and I went, me and Will should do the history of cinema <laughs> on the <laughs> Patreon episode. And then I quickly sobered off. <laughs> so I think that probably King Lear, Patreon episode, we should watch it again and discuss. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for the letter, uh, Phil Siegel. And yeah, King Lear, it's on our docket. We're going to do it soon. We're going to do it. So this week on our Patreon, it was a Patreon's choice. We picked a name out of hat. And a loyal listener suggested a film for us to watch, and it was The Dark Backward, a film directed by Adam Rifkin, who we've talked about before on the Patreon, because he directed the last movie star. But we really went deep into Adam Rifkin this time. Yeah, and we talked about, like, what it means to try to make a cult movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you can get a Tell hint... me a little preview of what we thought of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, if you want to check that out, um, you can become a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash club, and you'll get... That episode and our entire back catalog and also access to our Discord channel where I've been trying since it started to get on and just chat with people. And if anybody has any questions or you want to talk about this week's episode, uh, I'd be happy to do it with you on there. And me and Will drop in every now and then to say a pithy one-liner as well. So so what are we doing next week, Will? Well, next week we finally turn our attention to Mr. Walt Disney. 
But, you know, there are so many eras of Walt Disney that we could focus on. The one where he hated Jewish people. The one where he thought that slavery should have uh, <laughs> continued. Yeah. Wasn't it better back then? I mean, I guess those are the two same periods, right? Because yeah. they went throughout his life. The one when he was trying to bust the union. At the oh, Disney yeah, company. that's right. So we decided. I mean, I already started reading a book and it said like, ah, Walt Disney was having so much trouble because they tried to form a union. Yes, this book was released by the Disney corporation yeah, i bet um so we decided to focus on i think one of the most interesting periods of the disney company which was world war ii ah the three caballeros my favorite disney film oh man all the best disney classics were released then the reluctant dragon um my fuhrer's face victory, victory through, through air, air power, power. <laughs> yeah. where's the live action remake of that <laughs> and so many shorts propaganda films even animated segments like um <laughs> yeah lots of posters of mickey mouse being like make sure you don't get venereal disease by sleeping with any of those german women uh-huh. loose lips sink ships <laughs> so we're gonna check all that stuff out we probably be, won't be watching the 170 um military films they made but we'll be checking out the fun stuff yeah like victory through air power it's fun right will right right uh yeah it's it's a delight i think it's like 70 minutes (laughs) you know and the three caballeros i want to know more about this strange mysterious country that is mexico oh man (laughs) all right so that's what we're doing next week until then i'm justin mcglue i'm will sloan thanks for listening so I'd just like to thank a few people that recently became Patreon subscribers, Bennett Glace, Tim, Samuel Sanchez, and Gormless. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers, and the show couldn't keep going without you. Will! Will! I just got the script for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood! You want to read it? We'll oh. learn what's going to happen. Oh man, here it is. Uh, five Lee. hours later. Bruce Lee. <laughs> It took you five hours to read that script. Well, Quentin's dense prose and uh, I made some notes, some improvements, numerous misspellings, and oh, trying to, yeah. you know, it's famous. Like Quentin Tarantino can't spell, just like me. We both share the same thing in common. <laughs> so, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, just played at the Cannes Film Festival, where obviously me and Will are right now. That's where we're reporting from. We're here on the beach. Look at all these uh, topless women now. Oh wait, the, look, the there's set. Henry Jaglum. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> that must be the most deep cut reoccurring gag in the. <laughs> Cinema Club canon. I mean, this this comes down to the fact that in Roger Ebert's book, Two Weeks in the Midday Sun, he talks about he tried to get to the Henry Jaglom movie and it was sold out. And Henry Jaglom himself brought him in and they sat next to each other in the aisle. Yeah. Can you believe that? A Henry Jaglom movie sold out. Henry Jaglom, the um, <laughs> seventh-rate Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood, Hollywood came Hollywood. out, and Quentin Tarantino put a letter out right before it played saying, please do not spoil the movie. Reasonable, I think. Yeah. And people had all types of hot takes on the internet. Because whenever Quentin Tarantino says anything, it seems to spark a debate on certain corners Which is of funny Twitter. because he talks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and like the spoiler thing is something that's been coming up. I mean, it's always existed forever, but it seems recently in this age where people will watch a TV show and chronicle it minute by minute as they're watching please don't do this if yeah. you're listening to it. And please don't tweet while you're watching a movie at home either. Like, it spoils it. And people are, like, just scrolling through Twitter and they're like, ah, what, what the hell? Does we, that bother you? First of all, I think it's funny that we're saying this at the end of an episode where we basically said the whole plot of the third man. Yeah, well, that's why I'm asking. Does that bother you? There's a difference 
between the third man and probably a show that's playing at that time that's never played yeah, before. Yeah, or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which isn't even going to be released for three months. <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's sort of... Bothers- I don't want to be dogmatic about any of mm. this. You know, I don't think Citizen Kane becomes the worst movie if you know what Rosebud is. Has anybody watched Citizen Kane in the last 50 years yeah. and not known what Rosebud is? Planet of the Apes, another example. I knew that Luke was the son of Darth Vader before I saw Empire Strikes Back as well. You know, I'm lucky. I didn't know that. You didn't? Were you like, <gasps> you dropped your bowl of Dunkaroos? I and- remember being very confused and thinking, that can't be true. And my, <laughs> and my dad saying, no, Oh, no, it is true. <laughs> and you're like, gotta trust my dad. Yeah. He, he's never he lied He knows to everything. Me. Like the fallen idol. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, like you, I'm not very dogmatic about it. I don't think I've ever gotten angry when somebody spoiled something for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember, speaking of Game of Thrones, when the first season started, my father and brother just spoiled something that happened in the fourth season. And I was like, ah, oh, come on, guys. And I was like, that was it. But I've been with friends who have come to nearly punching me because I've insinuated I might spoil something coming up. Yeah. (laughs) So it's weird, right? I mean, if I tell you that Iron Man dies in Avengers Endgame, Mm -hmm. how how do you feel about that? If I said that just right now? I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. Because I went into that movie knowing that Iron Man would Yeah, I I would assume that. I I mean, it's a movie, right? Like, who cares? If I'm in it and it's happening, even though that... I know Iron Giant is going to die. Uh-huh. I still cry at the end of Iron Giant. Like, I know what's going to happen. Yeah. But if it moves you on whatever emotional level, like, that's what matters. Because spoilers is shock, right? That you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe that have ha- that happened. But there's got to be more around that to actually move an audience member. You know, I know some people who, like, refuse to watch trailers. Like, they won't. That's fine. They won't. Yeah. I mean, not that I give a shit, really. Yeah. But, but like, they'll... they'll absolutely avoid them and like if for example a star wars trailer comes out mm, you know, they'll like cover their ears and look at the ground yeah yeah i mean matthew kumar's like that he doesn't watch any star wars trailers you know okay i actually do find that i mean i don't give a shit what people do but yeah. i also find that a little bit weird and baffling because with a star wars movie i think the trailers and the marketing are kind of an like ext- hyping it up they're an extension of the text like okay. they're part of the big cultural moment that we all participate in with those movies mm-hmm. you know and you think that they're um not participating in the cultural moment by not watching those trailers uh I mean, I guess they just want to have a different sort of experience with them, but I don't think it's the sort of experience that most people are having with those movies. I mm. mean, those the Star Wars movies, more than just movies, are cultural events. Yeah. You know? you know, what's interesting about Matthew Kumar is that he doesn't watch any of the trailers. He actually mutes Star Wars on any social media, but he's not doing it in a way that, like, this is holy to me and I want it to be, like, special. Because he'll see one and be like, nah, it sucked. Mm-hmm. Like, like, that'll be it. But it's just like that experience, I guess, is special for him. And he just wants it for that moment, which is fine. Uh, I am not reading any reviews of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, really? Because uh, you don't want to spoil yourself. Well, I mean, I generally don't read a lot of reviews of movies before I see them anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, because I probably do want to go in. I actually you know, read not... a fair amount of reviews. And it's like a sad kind of review reading is that I don't really have any particular like reviewers I go to. In the sense that, like, ooh, I want to see what this person says because I value their opinion. It's just more like, eh, just a general grab bag of, ah, no, not this person. (laughs) I feel like I sort of get a general sense, like, if if something like that shows at Khan, I get a sense just scrolling through Twitter of what the consensus is. And you're like, I'm going to see it. That's what that's, well, I'm going to see it regardless (laughs) of what the consensus is. So why watch the trailer? I did watch a trailer today for it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Because, I mean, I like to get excited for something. I like to, like have that sense of like oh this is happening even though i'll watch the trailer and go 
How does this fit into the larger whole? Well, that's why you shouldn't watch him more than once. <laughs> oh, I only watched him once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, wait, that action scene didn't appear. That shot of Sam Levine in Glorious Bastards when he's running down the hall with the machine gun is not in oh, the actual yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's fun, too. Yeah. So, I mean, Quentin Tarantino does that all the time because he re-edited Inglorious Bastards after the con premiere hmm. and he took out a bunch of scenes that still have not seen the light of day. Well, that's why you shouldn't go to con. So, spoilers. Somebody doesn't like them respect it but you know i don't care i don't care either <laughs> but we are excited about um once upon a time in hollywood yeah i mean uh you know quentin tarantino love him or hate him uh i don't see anybody else who's making a movie where bruce lee is a character <laughs> yeah that's right where um the main star stars in a bunch of sergio Corucci films i mean the fact that the wrecking crew is a big plot point of this movie <laughs> I mean, if if it were a regular filmmaker making a movie set in 1969. Yeah, if it was like a, um, who directed um, Trumbo and he did the Meet the Parents for Jay Roach. Yeah, if it was Jay Roach. You'd be like, eh, I don't care. Like the, the marquee would say like Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't say, you know, whatever. The what movie crew. playing was yeah. there, yeah. The, the actual movies that were made in 1969. Was, I mean, like Tarantino, obvious, just watching the trailers, like he fetishizes this era but not in the way that most movies fetishize like a certain like time. It's like the specifics of it is what yeah. interests him. The stuff that you never see. And the fact that he's made this movie about like, you know, aging people like an old cowboy star from like the previous decade. So you know? like a whole world population are finally going to learn that wash up Hollywood stars went to Italy to make westerns yeah because you know that's going to be a plot point in the movie and like with quentin tarantino it's like you know yeah i get it he can be abrasive and you know problematic his movies are never going to be as good as they were when i was like 15 years old yeah but uh on the other hand bruce lee's in the movie <laughs> like I, like i'm sorry how could you not like this guy who's like putting sergio Corbucci references into his movies <laughs> yeah. i mean like this i mean if you don't like sergio Corbucci, then you wouldn't like that how can you not like Sergio Corbucci? 